For the last month or so, the Rugby World Cup has been happening in Japan. Maybe you've been aware of that fact because you've been getting up early to enjoy lots of rugby. Maybe you're aware of that fact because someone in your house has been getting up earlier than usual and has been disrupting your normal morning TV routine. Or maybe you have been blissfully unaware because it's been on so early you didn't even know it was happening. But like most major sporting occasions, it was full of ups and downs, shocks and surprises. Almost as many surprises as at the showground yesterday. But one of the surprises was how the host Japan performed, beating many major teams and a few lesser teams like Scotland. A few weeks ago, they even defeated Ireland. Ireland had come into this World Cup confident, having recently beaten the All Blacks, had good performances, strong players. This would surely be Ireland's year. And then the underdog, Japan, beat them. Poor results meant they had an early exit. And so Ireland will return to Dublin and the papers, the news, everyone on Lansdowne Road will be analysing what went wrong. Why did they underperform? How did the stronger team not beat the weaker? In a sense, that's how lots of commentators come to Joshua 7. Because it's a story of how the underdog wins. Joshua 7 comes just off the back of God's people defeating the mighty fortified city of Jericho. And yet we read that whenever they come to the much weaker city of Ai or Ai, they're soundly defeated. They retreat in fear. Their hearts melt. Some people have suggested in their analysis, well, maybe they feel because they weren't confident enough. Or maybe they were overconfident. They were cocky after this defeat of Jericho. Some have said maybe it was because of a lack of prayer. They didn't pray enough. If they had sought God more, they would have had it. But in a sense, we don't need to do that kind of sporting analysis on Joshua 7. Because twice we are told exactly why Israel failed. Verse 1 and verse 11. We're told Israel was unfaithful. And then we're told very explicitly Israel sinned. God's people were not able to stand against their enemies because of hidden and unconfessed sin among them. We're told in verse 1 and then later on in the chapter it's explained more what the nature of this sin was. Achan had went and taken those devoted things that he was not to touch. A few weeks ago Andre was with us and he spoke about the first fruits of the harvest. The plunder in Jericho was the first battle they'd won. This was supposed to be the very first fruits that were given to God. The rest could come to them, but they were to leave this to God. But Achan was selfish. He wanted it for himself. For a few minutes this morning, we're going to think as we prepare our own hearts to come to the table on Achan's sin. Because in many ways, his sin parallels our sin. And how he deals with his sin is often how we wrongly, I think, try to deal with ours. The first thing that we notice is that Achan's sin was complex and complicated. On one level, we might be tempted to think that all he did was covet. That's what he says in verse 21, isn't it? I coveted. He broke the Ten Commandments. 
if we were honest, we might say if we were to rank the Ten Commandments in order of severity, if we could do such a thing, we'd probably put coveting fairly low down in the list, probably even tenth in terms of severity. Because if we're honest, we don't really think it's that bad. Is it really such a problem that I, I look at what someone else has and I want it? But what we see in the story in Joshua 7 is that covering was just the start. Just the little seed that was sown into the heart that would bear a terrible fruit. Because if we consider the other nine commandments, and some of them are addressed in verse 11 as well, we see how in breaking the one, as James would say, he broke them all. The ninth commandment calls us to live honestly. Achan had clearly acted dishonestly in how he had behaved and covering up what he had done. The eighth commandment forbids stealing. Obviously that one fell. The seventh commandment, well that forbids adultery. As we read the story, there's no indication that he has been unfaithful to his wife. And so at first glance we might say, well at least he didn't fall down there. But if you look at verse 1, you'll see a very specific language is used. We're told the Israelites were unfaithful. The language of unfaithfulness is the language that would be used later in the book of Hosea. Language that would be used to describe how God's people would commit adultery on God. How they would act unfaithfully towards him. So here while he may not have acted unfaithfully to his wife, he has certainly acted unfaithfully towards his God. The sixth commandment calls us to protect life. 36 men were killed at Ai because of Achan's actions he was responsible for their death the fifth commandment requires us to honor those in authority clearly he had showed disregard for everything joshua had said the fourth commandment is a call to find our ultimate rest in christ but all we see in achan is restless discontentment the first three commandments all call us to live for to worship to honor god above all else and before all else but in his covetous attitude, Achan made gold and silver and a Babylonian robe, the God he wanted to worship. You see, what seemed like just one little sin I coveted was much more complicated, much more complex. Walter Scott famously noted, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. We could change the word deceive there to sin. It would be a lot less poetic, but no less true. Because our sins are never really just one little thing, but they're a complicated, complex, interwoven thing in our lives that will tie us down and trip us up. Beware those little sins that we think are inconsequential. But Achan's sin was also a very modern sin. Despite this narrative taking place thousands of years before Christ would be born. One writer has commented on how the two items that Achan steals actually reveals a lot about him. He took gold and silver and a beautiful robe from Babylonia. It would appear that really his sin was materialism. A desire to be fashionable. A desire to be like the other nations. He wanted the wealth because that could make him feel secure. I wonder if we've ever known that feeling. He wanted the robe because it would make him fit in. I wonder if we have ever felt like that. Remember, God's people had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. 
We're told during that time their clothes never wore out. A miracle in itself, God had provided for them in a supernatural way. But that wasn't enough for Achan. He wanted to appear successful and fashionable far more than he wanted to be identified with God's people. And as I read those comments this week, I was challenged because it reveals so much of my own heart, of wanting to look like those around me, of just wanting that little bit of financial security. See, the temptations that Achan faced are in many ways the temptations that each of us face as well, aren't they? Achan's life warns us to be vigilant and on our guard. Because as Jesus would say thousands of years after this, in his famous parable of the sower, it is the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things that will come in and choke the word, that will make it unfruitful in our lives. Thirdly, we see that Achan's sin is exposed. The fact that Achan chooses to bury these sacred items is a powerful metaphor, isn't it, for how we seek to deal with our own sins? It's not until Achan is asked by Joshua directly that he confesses. He hides until the very last moment, only confesses when he can hide it no more when asked directly. What's particularly interesting here is in verse 23 we're told that not only are these items laid out among the congregation, but they are laid out before the Lord. That little phrase highlights the futility of trying to hide and cover our own sin. But it's our human disposition, isn't it? We've seen it from the very start in Eden. Adam and Eve sin and they try to cover it up with fig leaves and hiding in the bushes. In the dining room of my mum and dad's room at house at home, there's a little plaque that was there the whole time I grew up. It says, Christ is the head of the home, the unseen guest of every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. I think it's probably based on the thoughts of Hebrew 4.13. We read, no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's a principle the reformers called coram deo. A Latin phrase simply meaning before the face of God. R.C. Sproul once said that coram deo captures the essence of the Christian life. He goes on to explain the phrase literally refers to something that takes place in the presence of or before the face of God. To live coram deo, Sproul says, is to live one's entire life in the presence of God under the authority of God for the glory of God. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing, wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. We cannot hide from him, and nor should we try. All of our lives are lived before him, whether we acknowledge it or not. Eventually that sin will be revealed, if not in this life, certainly in the next. But hiding our sin is painful. Psalm 32, David writes, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. 
I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Covering our sin leads to weakness and pain and sorrow. Confession leads to forgiveness. David's son Solomon would write, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. As the promise of the gospel, we don't have to bury our sins this morning, but we can come before God, confess them openly, renounce them, and find mercy. Because as the Apostle John wrote, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. Finally, we see the seriousness of Achan's sin. His sin was so serious that it brought judgment on him and his family. The sin that he had impacted was not just interwoven to other sins, but it spread out to those around him. The question is often asked here in Judges 7. It's what we might call one of the difficult passages. Why does Achan's family have to die? We don't have time this morning to get into the Old Testament ethics, but maybe if you wait for coffee, Neil, I'm sure, will be happy to address those questions with you. But I think one probable and possible suggestion that makes it most clear is that it's unlikely he hid these things in his tent unaware to his family. In fact, his family were likely helping him do it. And so they stand guilty as well through their implication. But whatever the reason, the point stands that Achan tells us sin is serious. It is a very visible reminder of that truth in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. Stones were erected over the remains of Achan in this valley of Achor. Even its name was to remind Israel that this is where Achan lay. His name was to be synonymous with sin. Just as the stones that Robert spoke about last week were to remind God's people of his faithfulness in bringing them to the new and promised land. These stones in the valley of Achor were to stand and remind God's people that they must not treat sin lightly, that it is costly, that there is a serious cost to sin. And in many ways, the table that is laid before us this morning is also a reminder of that serious nature of sin, of the cost of sin, because it was our sin that meant Jesus' body had to be broken, that his blood had to be shed. Just as the children of Israel were supposed to look on those stones in the valley of Achor and remember the seriousness of their sin, so we ought to look at the elements on the table before us this morning and remember the seriousness of our sin. That without Christ, it would separate us from God. That but for the cross, we would not be able to come near, but would be under that same penalty of death. But because of Christ, the wages of sin is death, but through faith in him we can have that gift of grace that is eternal life with him. To make sense of 
this story, we have to turn to another Old Testament book. It's the book of Hosea. A book we've already mentioned where it's a powerful parable of God's people being unfaithful to him. In many ways, it's a, a story of judgment in God's people. But in chapter 2, in the middle of this judgment comes a promise of hope. It's a promise that doesn't make much sense unless we're familiar with Joshua 7. Hosea 2, we read this little promise. I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. God promises that that place of judgment would become a gateway to a better future. What a powerful picture of the cross. Where God's ultimate judgment would be poured out in Jesus so that we would be able to walk through the door of hope into a better future with him. That's what this table signifies. So as we come to sit around it this morning, let us pause and consider the seriousness, the complexity of our sin. And as we consider the depth of our sin, may we not hide, but may we come and confess it openly, trusting that the Lord, that because he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, we can become the very righteousness of God and him. It was through the cross of Christ here symbolized that the valley of judgment became a door of hope. A close with the words of James Montgomery Boyce. He went down into the dark valley of judgment, dying in our place in order that he might rise us, raise us up to hope by his resurrection. Let us come and eat and drink as those forgiven. Because Christ entered the valley of judgment, we can walk through that door of hope. Let us pray. Father, we confess this morning that we are reluctant to lay our sins before you. For we are proudful, we are prideful, and we are ashamed. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to cover them, not to deceive ourselves by denying them, but to confess them openly before you, trusting that you will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we thank you for the cross of Christ this morning. We thank you for the hope we have in him. Because he entered that valley of judgment and died in our place, we can walk through that door of hope and know the eternal joy of being with you. Lord, we come to say thank you for the cross this morning. Oh, man.